everyone, and welcome to History and Games, an audio and video podcast that celebrates the educational power of video games, whether that's science, math, or in my case, history. Uh, last time, I interviewed Professor Josiah Ober of Stanford University. We talked about the origins of Western democracy. We tied it to some video games that sort of cover that subject, but I also asked him about the current state of democracy and if democracy around the world is in danger. And so if you haven't checked out that episode, please do so. I think you'll find it very interesting. You can find it on any audio podcast platform, or you can go to my YouTube channel, History and Apostrophe Games, and check it out there. Now, I'm going to continue my Ancient Greek Odyssey because today we're going to talk about ancient Greek heroes, but with a twist. We're not just going to talk about the fun, action-packed, romantic adventures of Perseus and Theseus and Odysseus and all that. We're actually going to dive deeper into ancient Greek heroes and how they did wonderful, great things but they also did some pretty terrible things that in today's society would land them in federal prison. So I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to talk about this duality of heroes. And some of these heroes were actual historical figures, which is why I needed an expert on ancient Greek history to put this all into context for, the, for us. So I went with the big guns. And I got a very special guest this week. He is a best-selling author, a military historian. He's been on everything from the History Channel to National Geographic Channel. He's been on Netflix. Um, I want to welcome to the show, I'm a big fan girl of his, Professor Barry Strauss. Yay! Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Meg. Thanks so much for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Ready to talk about some ancient Greek heroes? Let's do it. Yes. Now, just to set this up for everyone, I did a call to action on my social media account. I actually did this a couple of times throughout the past six months because I knew this episode was coming. And I asked people to define a hero. What is a hero? Who do you know that you consider heroic? And the answers across the board were always heroes are somebody who help other people they save other people or they put their own safety and welfare in danger to better other people's lives. So that could be firemen or doctors or nurses who save people, or that could be that teacher in fifth grade who inspired you to go on and uh, do a lucrative, uh, fulfilling career. Um, but the term hero has changed over the millennia. Back in ancient times, the idea of an ancient hero, it, it was very different. And so I sort of wanted to focus on that because when we were all growing up, and I don't know if, if you felt the same way, but when I was growing up, I love tales of Greek mythology. They were so fun and action-packed. You know, there were these adventures where, you know, Jason and his Argonauts, they go off on a quest to find the Golden Fleece. Jason ends up fighting both a dragon and a robot, which is really cool. Right. And then you have Theseus, who saves Athenian children from being eaten by the Minotaur of Crete. You've got Perseus, who saves a princess from a sea monster by first fighting a gorgon, cutting off her head, and then using the power of her stony stare to turn the sea monster into stone. And then you've got the 12 labors of Hercules. They do these really amazing, cool things. And we grow up thinking of them as very heroic. But as you get older, you sort of realize that these stories are a little sanitized. So we kind of see this other side 
of Greek heroes, but we kind of understand why they're worshipped. They're bigger than life, right? They're, they're still kind of cool. At least they did some amazing things. So why do I have a historian here today? Well, I wanted to focus on the ancient heroes of the Iliad and the Odyssey, because these heroes were literally worshipped by the ancient Greeks in hero cults. And as I talked about in my episode with Professor Sarah Isles Johnston, hero cults were a real thing. They were elaborate rituals uh, to heroes who were part of the, the death cult, but they had really cool powers that could help or hinder a community. But if we look at the ancient Bronze Age heroes, they're extremely problematic, which is why I have Barry Strauss here today, because he wrote a whole book on the Trojan War and put it into this historical context so that we can understand better why these heroes did what they did, who they are, and why they were worshipped. You're all probably familiar with the Iliad. It's, you know, on the, on the surface, it's about a Trojan prince named Paris or Alexandros, he goes to Sparta, falls in love with the Spartan queen, and they run off together, and it kicks off a war between the Greeks and the Trojans that supposedly lasts for 10 years. And the Greeks eventually win this fight uh, by essentially tricking the Trojans into letting them into the city. They hide in this big wooden horse. You know it as a Trojan horse. They get into the city. They sack the city. They go home with Plunder and Helen, and it's supposedly a happy ending. But really, it's about... It celebrates the glory, Cleos or Cleos, of Achilles, the ultimate warrior of his time. And, you know, this tale is over 15,000 words long. And for most of it, Achilles does the superlative, the glorious, the honorable act of absolutely nothing. Yes, out of the 24 books of the Iliad, Achilles spends nearly 20 of them pouting in his tent and crying to his mother and wishing death and terrible things on his own colleagues right? All because King Agamemnon hurt his feelings. But yet it's been prophesied that if he stays at Troy, he'll die a glorious, amazing death that the muses will sing about for eons to come. Thus Achilles attempts to have his cake and eat it too. He sticks around to taunt Agamemnon while watching his comrades die horribly around him. It never ever occurs to him that he's, you know, if he's going to pull that kind of stunt, Something cataclysmic is going to happen in order to spur him into battle. Sure enough, his soulmate Patroclus dies in battle. He's killed by the Trojan prince Hector. And only then does the best of the Achaeans pick up his spear. But when he finally joins the fray, what he does is so offensive, it's literal anathema to the gods. And the Iliad ends not with a Trojan, Trojan horse trick, but with King Priam or Priam of Troy having to literally beg for his son's body back, which Achilles tried to mingle out of pure spite. Wow, what a hero. At least that's how my uh, schoolmates and I thought of Achilles when we took Greek seminar. Everybody hates Achilles. It's really easy to do, but I feel like we're missing context. Why do the ancient Greeks worship him? Did they love him? Did they hate him? But why was he the ultimate warrior of ancient Greece? I've never gotten a satisfactory answer. So that is where Barry Strauss comes in. I'm hoping you can talk about the Iliad and these Bronze Age heroes and warriors and explain why they do some, some things that would be kind of particularly heinous to us, but also would be kind of, you would think they'd be heinous to the archaic and classical Greeks who fought in a very different way. They fought in a group, they fought in a phalanx. You had to coordinate a group and be together. And yet you have this one man killing machine breaking all the rules. What am I missing here? <laughs> Who is Achilles? Who is this warrior? And why was he, why was he worshipped by the Greeks? 
Well, it's you're asking interesting questions. I think that it, we need to look at it in a less either or kind of way. Uh, when we say that the Greeks worshipped heroes, that's that's true. They worshipped gods as well, but they didn't worship them because they thought they were entirely good. They worshipped them because they thought they were also kind of terrible, and they had to placate them. Uh, they had to get them on their sides. They had to win what the Romans called the peace of the gods to establish that. Um, and they also thought that these heroes had powers, as you mentioned, that they wanted to um, they wanted to, to to get for their own. They wanted the heroes to endow them with these powers and to bring them success. So that's part of it. I think Achilles for the Greeks has his has a foot in two worlds. On the one hand, he looks forward to the world of the phalanx, his myrmidons, his warriors. The myrmidons are the ant men. They fight like ants. They literally mean the ant men. They fight like ants, and they um, uh, they work together in a sense, in in a quasi phalanx. But Achilles is also a throwback to the Bronze Age, when the leaders of armies would represent the battles as if they had personally done all the fighting, and sometimes they actually did. They really did have champion battles in the Bronze Age, probably the exception rather than the rule, but we do have some historical references to them. And so I think Achilles for Greek audience is represents both of those things. Achilles, certainly the Greeks did not look on Achilles as a paragon. They looked at him as a kind of terrifying figure who is half man, half God. Um, and who towered above other people in both good and bad ways. And the Iliad is a story of the education of Achilles, and it's a very painful education. It starts out, as you know, uh, with the, the poet saying, sing God is the rage of Achilles. It's about rage, not mere anger, absolute rage. It would be as if this were a poem about someone's road rage, someone who's really out of control and misbehaving. Uh, and Homer says that it sent uh, it sent men, you know, it sent uh, myriads of men to Hades. It killed myriads of men. His rage did. Um, and yet the will of Zeus was done. So how it in part part of the purpose of the poem is to explain to the listeners, how can this be? You know, how can such terrible things happen? And yet somehow, fulfill the will of Zeus. It's another way of saying, what's life all about? What does it all, all really mean? And what can we learn from a figure like Achilles? So not entirely a hero in our sense, a hero in the Greek sense of someone who achieves greatness and who is larger than life, uh, but not necessarily somebody who you want as your best friend. Far from it. You know, it's interesting because we're, we're talking about, you know, glory and how the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. were always chasing glory. Can yes. you talk about the importance of that for these Bronze Age warriors and just for ancient Greek warriors in general? Why was chasing glory so important for them? Glory and honor. Um, I don't know. I don't think we're all that different. I think that nowadays people chase greatness. Uh, they want to achieve success. They want to rise to the top. Some people want to be celebrities. Um, lots of people want greatness. Lots of people want to um, be number one. I don't think the Greeks are really any different from us in that sense. 
What makes the Bronze Age different is that they measured this in material terms rather than abstract terms. And that's partly because in the Bronze Age, uh, human beings had, had barely begun to invent abstractions. Uh, they would have to talk about things in, in material terms. So uh, Achilles, as you know, cares about his prizes uh, and he is furious, driven to rage uh, because Agamemnon threatens to and then does take away uh, his greatest prize, who is a woman, um, and uh, Briseis. Uh, so for Achilles, uh, she's clearly, I mean, clearly this is horrible to us that you would measure someone in a human being. It's akin to slavery um, and it's akin to sex slavery, uh, which we rightly think of as a terrible thing. Um, but this is a more primitive civilization and they looked at things in in different terms. I don't, I think that Greeks in the classical period, looking back, sadly, classical Greece did have slavery, but they would look at the way that Achilles treated Perseus and they wouldn't be entirely down with it. Interesting. And so the one thing you say in your book about the Trojan War is that even though the language seems exaggerated, this was kind of part and parcel to the way things were explained in the Bronze Age. We actually yes. have archaeological and historic evidence that the right. ancient Egyptians, the Hittite Empire, they mm -hmm. did have these champion battles and yes. they, you know, they, they did, you know, fight in the same manner. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how Homer sounds like he's exaggerating when he said the gods get involved and, you know, Achilles kills like 20 men, but this is attested in actual historical Bronze Age sources, isn't it? Well, what's attested is that this is the way people spoke about things. This is the way people thought um, that an individual would kill 20 men. No, I'm not so sure that's attested, but that uh, and a Hittite king or an Egyptian king would say that I killed 20 men. The battle's all about me and my achievements. That's the way that they portrayed themselves. And we find that in Bronze Age texts again and again. So in that sense, Homer is true to the spirit of an earlier age. And in a sense, the Iliad and the Odyssey represent the historical memory of the Greek people, but not history in the sense that we think of it today, that we mean to be objective and based on archival research or perhaps on oral interviews and documents, uh, but rather on poetry, on songs, on the way that people uh, sang about these things and certainly exaggerated these things as well, but based on categories that really mattered to these people. So battle prowess really mattered to these people. Uh, being the greatest warrior really mattered to these people. Having material, uh, having objects that demonstrated your your honor and your glory, that's, that really mattered to, to these people. So it's it's a poetic exaggeration, but based on the way that people looked at the world in the Bronze Age. Right. And, you know, the Trojan War, um, we do have evidence that there was some sort of clash when it came to the, the city of Troy. We have archaeological right. evidence that there right. were Achaeans. They were actually attested to, again, in, Hittite, in right. the Hittite Empire and Egypt, yes. which is so fascinating. Yes. And uh, I guess my question is, you know, that did happen, and it's sort of towards the ends of the Bronze Age, but I have a couple right. of books on the end of the Bronze Age, and there was some sort of systems collapse. There's an argument with scholars about how it happened right. or exactly what happened, right. but that world is gone by the time Homer 
you know, comes up with his, you know, epic power ballads, these poems that sing the praises of these Bronze Age heroes. Right. And you can tell that there's this sort of dim historical memory of this. But, you know, by the time of the Iron Age and the archaic and classical period of Athens, mm-hmm. that's that's long gone, that way right. of living. And yet right. the ancient Greeks loved hearing these poems. And in fact, in, you know, sixth century Athens, uh, you know, there was there were rules about how you you told this poetry and how you performed, because, of course, it was sung, you know, perform the Iliad and the Odyssey. What? Is it about these Bronze Age heroes that you think really resonated with Iron Age, you know, phalanx warriors? Well, first of all, everybody's got history. Everybody wants to have a history. And, you know, the United States is a relatively young country, but we look back to the colonial period, uh, whether it be 1776 or 1619 or whatever year you, you wish. We certainly look back to that a lot and uh, want to root. Uh, our our current our current life in in that period. So I think the Greeks are no different from anyone else in that. Um, the Bronze Age had a mythical power, as you said. That's the civilizations were gone, but they remembered them and they could see many of their monuments and uh, they built their civilizations in some of the same places. Uh, take Athens, Athena, in Greek or Athena in ancient Greek. Um, this is actually a pre-Greek name. It's a name that goes back to the inhabitants of Greece before the Greek speakers even got there. And the Acropolis of Athens, where the famous temples of Athena were built, the Parthenon in particular, that's where the kings had their palace in Mycenaean times, in Bronze Age times. So it was important for these people to feel that they were rooted in these earlier civilizations, that that gave them a, a sense of legitimacy and a, a deep, deep connection to their land and to, and to their culture. The Bronze Age people were different, but some of their values continued on to the classical period. And there's always a tension in classical Greek civilization between the ideals of the group and the ideals of the individual. We see it again and again in Greek civilization. One of the most famous and problematic characters and fifth century Athens is Alcibiades, you know, the uh, ward of Pericles, who is an Athenian statesman and an Athenian general and an Athenian traitor, or Socrates, who was his teacher and who Alcibiades wanted to be his lover, but Socrates um, uh, kept uh, kept away from that, at least physically. Um, Socrates, too, is a figure who fights in the phalanx and is a loyal Athenian, but he's also someone who sees himself as having a duty to the gods, to the god, as he puts it, uh, that sets him apart from the citizens of Athens, uh, and and that makes him a law unto himself. Uh, So there's always this tension in Greek society, and I think the Bronze Age heroes uh, allow the Greeks, give the Greeks a way of expressing um, their, their frustrations, their the tension that that's so important a part of Greek civilization is one of the reasons why Greek civilization is as fertile and creative as it is precisely because there are these tensions. Interesting. I never thought of it that way. And you mentioned, you know, Alcibiades and Pericles, and that is a great segue into more historical figures that sort of follow the narrative arc of heroes. I noticed that again, these heroes sort of have this arc, where they start off doing something really amazing, but then they do 
something potentially terrible. And, you know, right. some of these demigods end up, you know, having kind of an inglorious death. You know, Theseus mm-hmm. goes off and dies on some small island off the coast of right. Athens. Right. Uh, you know, uh, the same with, you know, Oedipus, you know, his whole family kind of goes and falls apart. Jason is mm-hmm. crushed by the mass of the Argo. Um, right. So they always have this narrative arc of, of, of balance of, you know, right. doing great things and terrible things. Um, right. And it feels like actual historical figures kind of follow the same narrative arc. And I, I don't know why that is, but it just seems to work out that way. So I wanted to talk about one uh, kind of heroic figure that follows that very uh, unusual arc, which is Themistocles. Yes. He was a 5th century BCE Athenian statesman. He's one of my yes. favorite figures in history because he has he's very much an Odysseus character. He's very wily. It's his idea to create an Athenian navy right before the Second Persian War. Uh, the Athenians had tripped over a cache of silver that they had found in a nearby mine. They're going to use it to, you know, lower taxes or give everyone a bit of money and they could go buy a new cloak. And Themistocles was like, wait, you fools. What if we pulled this together and created a navy that could, you know, not only defend us, but go off and go get food and treasure and whatnot. And he had this incredible foresight. And in Herodotus, you know, he does all these clever, wily things to win, uh, a couple of battles against the Persians. Uh, you have a whole book on it called The Battle of Salamis, the naval encounter that saved Greece and Western civilization. I encourage everyone to go read that book. It's fantastic. Um, and Herodotus, you know, makes Themistocles kind of seem like a hero, but then Thucydides ends up picking up the story where it turns out that eventually Themistocles is looked upon with suspicious. Maybe he's too successful. Maybe he's a little too arrogant. He's ostracized out of Athens, but he's not just ostracized. He starts creating trouble against the Spartans. He foresees trouble with the Spartans, which will end up in the Peloponnesian War. He starts causing trouble and he isn't just ostracized at that point. I cannot think of the word off the top of my head, the ancient Greek word for it. He's outlawed. He cannot go back to Athens and he is chased out of Greece and ironically ends up in the Persian Empire we actually have archaeological evidence. We have coins that have his name on it, right? So Thucydides isn't just talking out his hat. This actually happened, and it's attested to in different plays. But he ends up in the Persian Empire. And when he dies, he has his own little cult in Western Anatolia, Western Turkey. That's a, that, that seems like a very crazy arc that is very much a heroic arc. Would you consider Themistocles a hero? Does he fit the definition, in your opinion, of a of a of a Greek hero? Well, a great question, and in many ways he does. And you're absolutely right. It's almost as if Homer had written a script of Greek culture, and Themistocles is following this script. He's not a team player. He's an absolutely brilliant person, you know, who's burning with ambition, and he wants to get to the top. And luckily for Athens, he uses his powers, as they say, for good. He uses his powers to talk the Athenians into doing the right thing and the Greek, other Greeks into doing the right thing at the Battle of Salamis. But he does so by using Odyssean wiles, by tricking people, uh, by, by using cunning. And it works. He's got the vision to see how things work. But he's way too big for his britches or for his <laughs> tunic. Uh, from the point of view of the other Greeks, he has much too high an opinion of himself. 
And it's not by accident that it's, it's the Spartans who honor her more than the Athenians do. Because for the Spartans, it's no skin off their nose to honor an Athenian. But for the Athenians, well, there are many other politicians in Athens. And the Athenians don't want to see anyone become too powerful. Um, they're always worried that somebody wants to turn himself into a tyrant again, just as Pisistratus and his sons had done. And so, as you say, they, they ostracized Themistocles. I'm certain that Themistocles was not Mr. Innocent. You know, <laughs> he um, dedicates a temple to Artemis of best advice, um, as if he is the guy who had the pipeline to the goddess to get the best advice. Um, some people have suggested that on the eve of the Battle of Salamis, when he sends a slave to the Persians, to say, um, you better come now uh, and block off the entrance to the Salamis Channel, the Straits of Salamis, because the Greeks want to escape. But if you come, I, Themistocles, will turn over the Athenian fleet to you. There's some people who think, you know, if the Greeks really had tried to escape and hadn't stayed to fight and fight, Themistocles would have turned over the Athenian fleet to the Persians. We have no proof of that, but he certainly was that kind of a guy. He was brilliant and slippery, an absolute genius as Thucydides sees it. As you say, he is eventually ostracized. That's not necessarily fair, but it's often the fate of the most prominent politician in Athens in this period. And then not merely ostracized, but forced to flee for his life, accused of treason, and ends up going to the Persian Empire, where it's just a, a tribute to his, on the one hand, his... Um, flexibility and talent that he's able to talk the Persians into making him uh, uh, an administrator, a governor of, of one of their provinces, uh, but also the fact that in the end, Themistocles says, well, I'd like to be patriotic to my country, but if push comes to shove, I'm patriotic to myself. I'm loyal to myself. That's a very Homeric kind of thing. And we see it often in ancient Greek culture. So would it be fair to say then that the, you know, Homer really reflects that culture and that culture continues even into the historic period and the archaic and classical and maybe even Hellenistic period? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a culture that, um, as I say, it's torn between the group and the individual. And there's just this constant tension between the group and the individual. It's one of the things that makes them so fascinating. I mean, um, they ultimately worship individuals. Uh, the supreme example is Alexander, Alexander the Great, who demands to be worshipped as a god. And the Spartans famously say, if Alexander wishes to be a god, let him. Um, the, the other Greeks are um, not as brave and they bow down to Alexander. But there are earlier examples, even before this, for instance, Lysander of Sparta, who wins the Peloponnesian War. Um, there are some city-states that worship him as a god. There's there's, there's certain, um, what's the word, prodromes, sorry, I can't really think of a good English word, um, uh, but hints of what's to come uh, in Greek culture that ultimately ends up with an Alexander. Of course, Alexander's a king. He doesn't live in a polis. He doesn't live in a city-state. Um, but ultimately, Greek culture comes around to kings, to kings again, and city-states have to compete with kings. And there's something in the Greek soul 
that is okay with a king, that will worship a king, that wants to step, is willing to worship one individual over others. Right. And so when we talk about Roman heroes, you know, we, we mm-hmm. sort of inherit this idea from the Greeks that these, these heroes are bigger than life. They're stronger, right. they're better, they're right. faster, and they do great things, but they also, because they're so passionate, they do terrible things. You yes. know, it, it feels like in order to win godhood or be a hero, you have to seem, you seem to have to do big things, both great and terrible at the same time. And this feels like this sort of, as you mentioned, like the Romans kind of inherit this idea. Who is yes. a great example of, of, of a Roman hero that sort of fits that narrative arc of doing maybe both great things, but terrible things? Aeneas, you know. Uh, Virgil in the Aeneid. Virgil, you know, is this fantastic poet who models himself on Homer and comes up with the epic of the founding of Rome. And one of the themes is that in order to found a city like Rome, you have to break a lot of eggs to make the omelet. And one of the eggs that gets broken in the story is Dido, uh, who Aeneas uh, loves and leaves, and she commits suicide. Uh, and supposedly you know uh curses rome saying you know carthage will always be your enemy because of what happened uh so uh it's it's a story of heroism but it's also it's a very unsavory story uh and i think that virgil is also speaking to his own time he in a way is the court poet of augustus the first roman emperor and augustus climbed to power over a mountain of corpses. And, uh, and Virgil is saying in a way, this is what you have to do. This is what you have to do if you want greatness. And it's tragic. It's maybe it's for the good of society, but it's not for the good of individuals. It's a very tragic, it's a very tragic story. So uh, that is part of um, the way the ancients looked at heroism. Remember, these are polytheistic cultures. And one of the aspects of polytheism is that you think their gods are good and sometimes the gods are not so good. And it's a way of saying that life ain't perfect. And a realistic view of life will accept the fact that there's going to be good and bad. And Achilles says this uh, towards the end of the Iliad when he and Priam are having a good cry together over fate. And Achilles says that Zeus gave us two jars. And one jar has good things and one jar has bad things. And nobody gets to spend life only taking from the good jar. Everybody has to take from the bad jar as well. This, I think, is is how the Greeks looked at the world. Right. Do you think we could benefit from looking at the world in the same way? Of course. I mean, you don't have to be a polytheist to look at that as well i mean monotheists look at it also if you think of the book of job which is admittedly one of the books of the bible that's most influenced by the greeks um, nonetheless uh, we get a similar thing uh, there that um, god will give us bad things as well as good things and in the end we can't understand it we have to believe that god is ultimately good in the last analysis but it's not life is not going to be a, a a bed of roses so, yes, I think we need to understand that. And it's harder to understand it when you're young, because fortunately, most of us have pretty good lives when we're young. Um, but as you get older, it becomes clearer. <laughs> right. <laughs> it definitely, you get that experience. You're like, huh, this wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, alas. Alas, yes. 
So I wanted to ask you something kind of fun. Who is your favorite hero from either ancient Greek or Roman sources? Who is, who is somebody that you find particularly fascinating? Well, fascinating and hero is not necessarily the, the same thing. Um, and way you defined hero in the beginning, which is a really good way to define hero for our society, I don't think it's necessarily the way the ancients would have defined a hero. A hero is someone who does great things, but not entirely good. Um, Themistocles is utterly fascinating. Augustus is utterly fascinating um, in not in again not entirely good ways augustus is in a way and is a man who puts who ends the roman republic and begins the roman monarchy what we call the empire and he does he's responsible for the death of a lot of people and a lot of civil war but he creates a lasting peace and that's no small thing themistocles is ultimately a traitor to save his life but he's the guy who saves athens he's the guy who defeats the persian in fact he saves greece uh, from persian rule and and certainly saves democracy if the persians had conquered greece in 480 um they wouldn't have been nazis they wouldn't have destroyed the greeks but i think they would have destroyed democracy certainly in the greek mainland maybe it could have survived in sicily and southern italy but it would have been a very different greek history if the persians had won and themistocles more than anyone else was responsible for that that outcome he didn't do it single-handedly but his contribution was outstanding and indispensable so yeah really fascinating figure i am also team themistocles i love him <laughs> he's, my, he's my favorite person it, you know it's interesting though because this is history and games and i was thinking while you're talking you know no one's ever made a video game that i know of, of themistocles he is briefly mentioned sort of out of hand in assassin's creed yeah. odyssey oh. which is the peloponnesian war but you yeah. eventually end up uh, meeting a Persian who met Themistocles. And that's about the closest it's ever gotten. And I'm writing historical fiction book on Themistocles, but there's such a dearth of like fiction for Themistocles. And I'm wondering if he's just too big and powerful or people don't understand him or he's hard to write about. Why is there not more Themistocles in the world? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. I did my part. I wrote, you the, did. Battle of, I wrote the Battle of Salamis. Uh, in which my, if I may quote myself, I say Themistocles was no angel, but Seraphim would not have saved the Greeks. I think that's, that's the story of, of Themistocles. Yeah. We need the Salamis game. Uh, <laughs> Themistocles suffers in English from the fact that his name is not easy to pronounce. No. Alexander's pretty easy. Caesar's pretty easy. Augustus pretty easy. Themistocles. Nah, not so easy. It, so it, can, it it doesn't. My brother keeps calling him Thermonitor, and I'm like, no, yeah, it's Themistocles. <laughs> maybe Themi or something. I don't know. Yeah, Themis. Uh, Themis. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. But yeah, no, it's a it's a great story. Uh, and Herodotus is one of the greatest storytellers of of all time. Uh, but maybe something this though, you know, uh, the most gut wrenching part of Herodotus is the story of the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, compared to Thermopylae, Salamis is almost a comedy. You know, <laughs> Thermopylae is just totally gut-wrenching and you're drained when you finish it. But Salamis ends with the comedy of um, Xerxes seeing uh, 
Queen Artemisia, the first female admiral in history. She's a fascinating figure as well. Uh, he sees her ramming a ship. It's actually one of his own ships. She's saving her skin that way and also um, settling a vendetta uh, with a personal enemy. But his he can't really see what's going on. There's no binoculars from where he is on land. And one of his servants says to him that, the, uh, that Artemisia, Artemisia has rammed an enemy ship, a Greek ship. And Xerxes supposedly exclaims, woe is me, my men have become women and my women have become men. A sexist statement, but from the point of view of the Greeks, pretty funny. And maybe even from our point of view, pretty funny. Um, so the story of Themistocles is also kind of a comedy. Whereas the story of Leonidas, it's sad, it's tragic, it's Hollywood. It's easier to tell a story than like that than it is to tell a story about uh, Themistocles. But it is really a great story. You've been on the History Channel and National Geographic or whatever. Right, um, right. Do you feel like like those kind of shows really help sort of bring that history to life? Do you think they're a useful tool for teaching people about history that they may not have heard of? Because until you wrote your book, and I'm so glad you did about the Battle of Salamis, I never heard of it. <laughs> the whole reason I picked it up was because of the subtitle, The Naval Encounter That Saved Greece and Western Civilization. And I was like, no, this can't be true. I've never heard of this battle. And then it turns oh. out it is very true. So do you feel like movies like 300 or video games like God of War and Hades, is this a good way to kind of get your foot in the door with this kind of history? Or is this maybe a terrible idea because they tend to be so fictitious? It's a great way to get the foot in the door. It's a great way to get the foot in the door. Anything that will interest people in history is, is terrific, even though some of the movies, I think that the documentaries really try to be true to life. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't, but they're not pure fiction. Uh, the movies, the video games, they can be more fictional, but I think they play an important role, in, especially in our society in which um, there are a lot of people who unfortunately don't read books anymore. And there are a lot of other, um, there are a lot of other temptations. People don't read books for bad reasons, but also for good reasons, because there's so many other uh, alternatives. So it's really important that we do as much as we can to get the real story out there and to get people to think and then to get them to want to take the next step of reading a book. And then maybe even going all the way and learning Greek and Latin and reading these in the originals. That is just a fantastic experience, especially reading Homer in Greek. There's nothing like it. But um, yeah, no, absolutely. What was your gateway into the classics? And my gateway drug history? was Thucydides, without question. You know, it was 1970, the Vietnam War was still going on. And I was a freshman in college and I read Thucydides and I thought, this is amazing. It's as if this guy is writing about Vietnam. How did he know what life would be like today? So that was my gateway drug. That was the beginning for me. No, that's a good gateway drug because he yeah. does write about the Peloponnesian War in great detail. And it is, it's yeah. very objective and it's very timely. It's its very much something that we can relate to. And it sort of brings yeah. us full circle to the Iliad and the Odyssey, which it yeah. still feels relevant in some ways today. The Iliad is not really a, you know, cartoonish action-packed adventure. It's a very realistic, very grim uh, look at Bronze Age warriors and war, isn't yeah. it? Yes, it is. I mean, um, the Iliad is an awful lot of the Iliad is blood and guts. I mean, yes, it's, kind it of, it's, it's kind of gross if you read the whole thing. Um, 
people tend to read the highlights, but I think it's important to also read the low, some of the, at least get a taste of the low lights and they're pretty low. And it's, it's very important to know, to, to get a sense of that and what this culture to consider to be entertainment, but it's what we consider to be entertainment too. I mean, there's all too much of it in popular culture. I mean, just really gross stuff. Um, and it's, it's out there. People have a taste for blood, sadly. Uh, the thing that about Homer though is that it's poetry and it's magnificent poetry and it tries to teach a lesson. It tries to teach morals. It's, it's as if this is poetry written for bad people <laughs> to say, we want to, we want to take you beyond the bad things you believe in. And we want to teach you a lesson. I mean, the story of the Iliad is a story of Gilgamesh. It goes back to very early civilization. It's a story of growing up and learning that, you know, life is not just all about having fun and killing people. Life means you're going to die too. And you have to come to terms with this. You have to come to terms with a very sad reality. I mean, Achilles has a horrible time in the Iliad. Of, uh, he, he really does. And I took an online course, I added an online course called The Greek Hero in 24 Hours by Professor, I think his name is Gregory Nagy from Harvard. Uh -huh. And he points out the name Achilles apparently has its roots in the word for like sorrow or he's a sorrow yes. of men yes yes is there a moral to this story when we talk about you know is 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 the Iliad sort of a, a, a morality tale about what not to do because there's this whole narrative arc about Achilles starts off very right. you know very chivalrous and he seems the better man than King Agamemnon, Agamemnon who's causing all sorts of problems for the Greeks he stands up to Agamemnon they have a falling out over their prizes, their women, right. women, right. and then Achilles retreats, and you know the, he doesn't come onto the battlefield until much later. He wreaks mm -hmm. havoc, mm -hmm. but then he kind of steps back and finally almost comes to his senses. Is there, was mm -hmm. there a moral to the story with Homer, or am I reading too much into it? Yeah, no, there is a moral to the story. It's meant to be a moral tale, and as you said earlier on we root for Hector we're meant to root for Hector I mean Hector is the good guy Hector's there defending his homeland his family his wife his child um, his people uh, but the poor guy doesn't have a chance against Achilles because Achilles is just a better fighter than he is he's a greater warrior uh, and Hector knows he's going to die he tells his wife Andromache I know I'm going to die um, but I have to do it anyhow uh, for the sake of my honor and for the sake of my country. He also says to her, well, it's too bad, Andromache. You're going to end up being a slave to some Greek. Um, it's a pity. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, husband. But, yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, he's not entirely good. None of these people are. But he's better than Achilles. And the, how does the Iliad end? It ends with the funeral of Hector. It ends with people lamenting Hector. Achilles doesn't get the beautiful death he wanted it's Hector who gets the beautiful death um it's not this is not a term in the Iliad it's not a term in Homer it's a term of later Greek poetry but um it's something that the Greeks aspire to a beautiful death it's certainly something that Achilles aspires to he doesn't get a beautiful death he's not killed in hand-to-hand -hand combat he's killed by an arrow from the distance uh, which is not considered a heroic weapon by by the Greeks um so he doesn't get a beautiful death at all. Patroclus gets a beautiful death. Hector gets a beautiful death. Achilles doesn't get it. Um, 
but it, the poem ends with the death of Hector. We're meant to see that Hector in a way is the hero of the story. And Achilles, you know, breaks down. He's horrible. He causes his Patroclus's death, his, you know, his best friend's death. Um, and then um, he maltreats the corpse of Hector and the gods show that they don't approve of this by keeping Hector's body pure, his corpse pure, even after how it's been mangled and is kept alive for, for days. Uh, and then Achilles, he comes to his senses. He sees old Priam taking his life in his hands, begging him at his feet um, to let his him, him bury his son's corpse. And Achilles cries. He thinks of his own father who will never see him again. And just how sad life is. So he grows up. He overcomes his rage. He learns something. And that's one of the morals of the poem as well. That's what we're supposed to take away from it. So we're not supposed to see Achilles as a paragon of virtue. We're supposed to see him as a great warrior, the greatest, the best man among the Achaeans, as he calls himself, uh, but also a braggart and an, an egotist um, and someone who causes horrible destruction because he can't control his emotions. Um, and we're supposed to learn from this, not to be like Achilles in a sense, to have the good side of Achilles without the bad side of Achilles. Yeah, it's interesting. Although I, I wanted to push a little bit on the, the idea that, you know, Achilles is not a great person. It, it, it's hard to see it that way. And yet the, the ancient Greeks did literally worship a lot of these heroes. They would fight uh, over the bones of heroes or they would dig sure. them up. The Spartans went and dug up Orestes' bones right. outside of Sparta, yes. brought them back yes. because they could be helpful to a community. And even Achilles supposedly had a tumulus, some sort of tomb in Western Anatolia that people would point out as a, you yes. know, a landmark right. and that they would perform rituals there. Were Was there fear of Achilles' power or were people like, hey, you are powerful in life. Maybe you can help us in death. Well, there was fear, but I think it's more the latter that maybe you can help us. But they were not saints. I mean, the Greeks looked at them and they they were realistic about them. I mean, the whole point of the Achilles, uh, excuse me, the whole point of the Iliad is that Achilles makes mistakes and learns from his mistakes, but he learns in a way when it's too late. So yes, you might pray to Achilles and say, Achilles, give me the courage to choose glory and death rather than uh, ignominy or not being famous and having a long life. You know, give me the courage to make this heroic choice help me be the greatest in battle. But you wouldn't look at Achilles, you wouldn't go to Achilles and say, hey, Achilles, give me some of that rage. You know? <laughs> and, you know, help me make the wrong choices that kill my own men and, you know, lead to my camp maybe almost being destroyed and uh, lead to the death of my best friend. No, you wouldn't do that. And yeah, Achilles, you know, teach me to mangle the corpse of my enemy and disobey the laws of war as we Greeks believe in them. You, you'd see him as, as a mixed bag. Right. And then I finally wanted to end the interview. Yeah. We talked about the sort of the ancient definition of a hero. Right. But if we go back to the modern definition of a hero, where do you think that comes from? Is that from medieval chivalry or Christianity? What, what shifted do you think? Well, I mean, I think Christianity has a lot to do with it. I mean, we, uh, you know, we expect our heroes to be good 
in a way that the Greeks didn't expect them to be good. The word, the Greek word good, it's agathos. We get the name agatha from it, pretty old fashioned name, but it does exist. Um, it also means being a, a, a warrior. It means being a warrior of prowess. It refers to warrior virtue. When the Greeks said that a man was agathos, they didn't mean that he was morally good uh, so much as that he was effective or that he was a great warrior. And the word for a gentleman in Greece is kalos kagathos, beautiful and good, beautiful and good. So um, the ancient notion of, uh, the modern notion of a hero comes from uh, a Christian ethos uh, in which we expect people to have moral virtue as well and not merely warrior virtue. I'm simplifying the Greeks. They changed a lot uh, over the centuries. If we look at Greek philosophy, we'll see some notion of moral virtue. The word uh, for virtue for the Greeks, arete, which originally means warrior prowess, comes to mean moral virtue in the sense that we know it. Certainly it's there by the time of Aristotle. Uh, but for our notions of hero, there's um, much more of a sense that a hero is supposed to be supposed to be good, morally good. But even in our society, we're forced to make concessions to pragmatism and to reality and to accept the fact that we want our leaders sometimes to do what you have to do to get the job done. And sometimes what you have to do to get the job done is not very pretty. This is an issue that we come up with again and again and again. Certainly wars are not won by being pretty. No. They're absolutely not. And then finally, I wanted to ask you, who is a hero in your life by modern standards, by that sort of happier, nicer version? Who would you like to give a shout out to that you consider heroic? If you want to be her the ancient Greek kind and be like me, that's totally acceptable. But if you have someone no. that you want to you want to give a shout out to, I'd love to uh, hear it. I wasn't expecting that question, but I, know. I think <laughs> that... You know, I think nurses are heroic. I mean, I think nurses are unsung heroes of our society. I mean, I've seen what nurses do in hospitals. How about any family members, any friends you want to give a shout out to? Yeah. Possibly family. a trick question. Uh, <laughs> possibly a trick question. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have so many friends and family members who've had to deal with illness and have done so without complaining um that's really kind of amazing um i don't want to mention anyone by name so as not to embarrass them but i several members of my family and my extended family have had to deal with illness and they to watch to see how courageous they are how uncomplaining they are how much they roll up their sleeves and say let's just get this let's go let's get on with this um that's pretty impressive. That's pretty <laughs> impressive as well. I mean, one can talk about, there's so many people in our society, there are firefighters uh, and police and um, soldiers who put their lives on the line for all of us. These are very heroic people. And, you know, we need to respect them. We need to thank them for, for what they do. And they ain't making a lot of money either. That's for sure. No, it feels like we, ironically, all the people we consider heroic in society are underpaid and underappreciated in a lot of ways, I think. Well, they are. They are, and they're not, they're not appreciated enough. But yeah, I think there are many such people. There are heroes among us. 
Yes. I appreciate my family. And I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to be on a complete stranger show about ancient Greek heroes, the definition of these heroes and, uh, and the stories and morals that we can learn from them. So thank you so much for being on my show today, Barry Strauss. Is there anything you'd like to promote? What can we expect from you in the future? I want to know. I want to be on the lookout All for my it. wonderful books. Uh, I've written many books. Uh, of course, I wrote this book on the Trojan War, which you can see here, and it's still available on Amazon and bookstores. And I've got a whole shelf of all my books. Um, I will get my most recent book. My most recent book is this one. It's called The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Uh, it's about this, uh, this battle, this naval battle like Salamis that took place in waters uh, off Greece. Um, it's very dramatic, and uh, it's got every, one of everyone's favorite characters in antiquity, Cleopatra. Um, so um, I really had fun writing writing this book and i'm currently writing a book a slightly different subject i'm writing a book called rebels um the jews in rome and it's about jewish revolts against rome and jewish relations with rome for over a period of about 200 years uh from 63 bce to 135 ce um and it, it certainly it has themes about heroism it has themes about cunning it has questions about uh, about zealots uh, it involves Jesus, it involves the Romans, it involves Josephus, it involves Hadrian, it involves Bar Kokhba. Uh, it resonates with things in Israel and Palestine today, uh, and it resonates things with, in our own country and own society today. I'm really having a lot of fun writing it. So, Oh my gosh, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds action-packed and exciting. Well, thank you. I think, <laughs> I think it's a great story. Yeah, I don't know much about it. So I'm really looking forward to being educated and the way you write. It's very sort of character driven. And it's almost like a like a fantasy novel you go through and you explain all the details of these worlds and really bring it to life. So I highly encourage people to go on Amazon, look up Barry Strauss. Also, you have a website that is also a useful place to sort of look at all of your work. And thank you again so much for being on my show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Meg. And um, it's been a pleasure. I would just say that I also have a podcast called Antiquitas, and it's on all platforms, all the major platforms. It's also on my website, which is barrystrauss.com. So um, delighted to see people there. Yes. Well. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. Well, I hope to have you on maybe again in the future. We'll talk more about sure. Rome. We didn't really talk much about Rome, but you have a lot of books on Rome as well. And Rome. I love them itself. both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How do you choose? Um, But thank you so much for being on my show. You're welcome, Meg. It was a pleasure.